Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your Liberation Theology stand and Religionless Church host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Melissa Floor Bixler. Melissa is a Mennonite pastor and author of the recent book, Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Ben Gadway. Ben is an electronic instrumentalist from Massachusetts. You can get connected with both Melissa and Ben and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Today we have Melissa Floyer Bixler. Did I say, is it Floor? Flory? Floor, you got it. Floor, yep. perfect. Floor Bixler, yep. And I love that last part of your name, Bixler. It's like, a, it's like a fun, it's like punchy kind of a word to say. It's great. Oh, yeah, yep. That's so, the one I brought to the, to the family. Oh, so you, of course. Especially proud of course, you're always the one just contributing to the, to the relationship. I don't uh, know. You know, I do what I can. (laughs) So you are a pastor, you are an author, and there's lots more to who you are, Melissa. But I'm curious, who is Melissa Floor Bixler to Melissa Floor Bixler? Oh, wow. Um, That that seems like it could be like a very um, theoretical question. Um, Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. Wow. That's that's a tough one. yeah, you know, when I think about identity, I think uh, a lot of my identity comes from life in the church. I, I grew up in the church, so I, I have a pretty um, complicated but but very ongoing relationship with with church institutions, and so hmm. I think a lot about myself within pushing against and living within those institutional structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of who I am comes from that. So yeah, mm. place to get started. Yeah. 
So you recently wrote a book called Fire by Night, and it's a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and I, I'm curious, what inspired you to write Fire by Night? Yeah. So, you know, we're, um, I'm, I'm a Mennonite pastor. So Anabaptism has a, has a pretty complicated relationship to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I mean, and that's very early on, like in the 16th century, there were some pretty weird things that happened in sort of like proto-Anabaptism around mm-hmm. like trying to like recreate the Old Testament in, mm, in this called Munzer. And um, the result of that was a lot of pushback um, from the emerging Anabaptist community about mm-hmm. about the ethics of mm-hmm. the Old Testament. And like um, Anabaptism was really a movement of of peasants. It wasn't a movement of, of educated people. Of, mm-hmm. um, and so you really had people who were getting the Bible for the first time and like trying to figure out like, what do we do with this? And and so I think some part of it was a reaction um, to mm-hmm. to some pretty violent and like terrible things that happened with trying to recreate monarchies and polygamy and this <laughs> and like living out these prophecies in the end times that that really came out of like Ezekiel and Isaiah. They're gonna have a tough time when they get to those plagues, trying yes, to recreate right? those. Yeah. I mean, that's that's gonna be a tough one. I mean, it, yeah, it just. Yeah, so so we just have this really complicated history of the Old Testament. Really, like went back to Jesus was like kind of where we center ourselves. Which mm-hmm. totally down with that. Love Jesus, um, but I think it also we're in it always reforming tradition. So we have to constantly go back and ask that question about mm-hmm. what what do we need to do? What do we need to rediscover here? What are the new questions? Mm-hmm. So hopefully, this is just another another piece of that story for us. That's great. What did you learn about yourself while writing Fire by Night? Um, I think I mean I think the big thing for me was just how I want to do theology. Um mm. I I I benefit a lot from from dogmatics. I, I benefit a lot from systematic theology. And and I think at a certain point for me, just sort of a sense of um how do we sort of offer up um, a theological story into the world and then allow that to be something that, um, I, I, I think you show instead of tell, right. Mm. How do you show theology, the theological life, um, that I think, I think is, uh, rigorous. I think it was a pretty theologically rigorous book. Maybe you can Mm -hmm. tell me that um but 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 still have it something that emerges from the from the story of of human lives and communities um and and i think i was like oh yeah this is this is what i want to be about this is how i want to do this kind of work what's something about the old testament that you learned that you didn't know or weren't expecting to know prior to writing the book god i mean that the chapter on the amalekites was that I really wanted to push myself in, in one mm. in one chapter. And for people who haven't read the book yet, it's this is the story where um have this sort of generational enmity woven into the story of of God's covenant people in in the Hebrew Bible. And it's like what what do you do with that? That that it's not just um the it's not just the crimes of one person, but that you will be this person's enemy for as long as they exist. Mm. Um, and I, and I, 
for some, that was just something that I think um, struck me as sort of a challenge for myself. Um, mm. And and so I think, like always, it, once you actually get into the story and 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 you allow the, the story to sort of rise up and you take seriously the questions, um, I think there's so much there um, within the text itself um, that the sort of idea of like cleaning it up or or just rejecting it. Mm. Um, sometimes that skips ahead of, of actually doing the work of the text. And I think I, I realized that about myself. I sometimes let uh, things be difficult without actually wanting to do the, the critical work of engagement mm -hmm. and asking the questions of myself and of mm -hmm. my world. And, and that was really a point where I saw that mm -hmm. come to life. Um, in particular with that story too, uh, I've, I've seen you tweet a little bit about like almost the necessity of like enemies or like recognizing that that is a reality in which we will have. Uh, is that something that was reinforced by interpreting and, and having to dig into this story? I think so. You know, I, I mean, more and more, um, I just had this piece come out in Sojourners this past month about, that I think like you're saying, sort of expanded upon that idea of just what do we do with enemies? And, mm. um, you know, really for, for me, living in this, the Trump era, I think has made me realize how few resources I have to sort to develop a sort of theology of enmity. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I just, it, it feel everything feels very nice, right? Like it's, um, um, and I think until we're really willing to grapple with the, the sort of the extent of um, the oppression that, that people were, were experiencing in, in the Old Testament, in our, in, that's reflected in our world. Mm -hmm. um, it just continues to be sort, sort of a place of privilege for us to say, oh, I don't have any enemies. We just, mm -hmm. you know, we should just feel this, we should just feel so, we should just feel this way or that way. Um, and I and I think I really, that's, I've, I've felt that in myself, um, that sort of reaction and having that tested mm -hmm. for, for me. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think that is a place where I continue to just have questions about yeah. things. I, I, speaking as, as somebody who just took a course on James Cone and Black liberation theology, that's a that's a prevalent theme throughout Cone's work. Is that there are enemies, and uh, and he makes no bones about that. And you know, for especially as somebody who came out of conservative evangelicalism and moved into a more progressive Christian world, where uh, there is kind of this little like nicest flair, where we we want to break down all binaries and dualisms, and we don't want to have these theological em enemies. Um, and even political enemies. And uh, and then so reading someone like James Cone, who is completely confronting that, interrogating that, and um, calling it out as it, he sees it, like it, it really would have convicted my myself, let's say three, four years ago, especially during the Trump campaign, where I really wanted to do kind of the whole dance of there being nuance and uh, and that, you know, even if you voted for Trump, you're that doesn't necessarily mean you're like an enemy and all that. And, you know, I've gotten to a point now where I, I make kind of no bones about it, that um, that that someone like Trump is an enemy. And uh, and so anyway, that I, I think you're totally right in that. And I, and I do think that that story in particular really highlights that.
did your own relationship with the New Old Testament, sorry, with the Old Testament change as you wrote the book? I just, you know, I don't know that it changed that much. I mean, I really, I, I wrote this book um, mostly out of sort of a very deep well of, um, of both respect, but also uh, just feeling, feeling drawn to the, to the Old Testament and to, to the complications of stories. I mean, I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, what I've always appreciated is just how complicated life feels in, mm, in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, it's nothing is that straightforward. The 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 morals and the ethics. There's no there's like no room for piety in any of those stories, and mm. and all of that ends up creeping in when you have with Paul writing these letters to these specific communities who are trying to work out these moral issues, and suddenly gets you know put on top of your church or your life and. And, I, and, and so it feels like such a, and, and I think all of that can be helpful, but at the same time to have three quarters of sort of the theological landscape of our church formed by people's really, really complicated, messy lives mm -hmm. um, has just always been a place that I, I have felt drawn to. And so more than anything, I felt like this was, um, I just wanted to share that with other people. Um, it's, I know that not everybody has that relationship to the first three quarters of our Bible. And, and yeah, I just felt like it was then something to offer up, to invite people in, in, into, mm -hmm. into my world and say, maybe there's something here for you too. Mm -hmm. How did your relationship with the New Testament then change as you wrote <laughs> the book? Yeah, I, I, I felt like, um, if anything, I... I began to see how the there also was some pretty messy, complicated stuff in the New Testament, especially around um, like the Jesus is nice kind mm. of sense that I think you, we were both talking about before, mm -hmm. um, and and that all of those stories that we're reading about the complications of 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 human life um, and the and God and land, um, all of that runs right through into Jesus, right? That's, that's the, that's the religious story that Jesus picks up, that, that stories that he were, he was taught. And, and so to recognize that, um, Jesus, it, like, doesn't want everybody at the Passover meal, right? Like there's mm -hmm. no, there's no Roman soldiers at the Passover mm -hmm. meal, like, it's not like Herod's invited or, and that there's like this really harsh partisan relationship that Jesus has. And, you know, I think back to, you know, if we pay attention to people like Cohen, to liberation theologians, we call that preferential option for the poor, right. that there's this grace that's extended and there's judgment upon those who cause calamity to vulnerable, oppressed people in our world. Um, and so actually it's sort of being able to to map those two things onto each other instead of this, like, God is so nice in the New Testament and so mm. mean in the Old Testament. Um, I always knew that wasn't true, but I think um, first, some things are clicked for me in being able to sort of keep keep those sort of wheels, I guess, turning together. Mm -hmm. Speaking of just that last thought that you mentioned, anti-Semitism runs deep in both conservative and more progressive expressions of Christianity. 
How can a Christian interpret and engage and wrestle with the Old Testament in more generative ways that honors both religious traditions? Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of my teachers who was Willie Jennings, and and mm. um, one of one of something I always keep in mind when I come to the Old Testament is um, that that I'm a Gentile, which is which is something Dr. Jennings talks about a lot, and I. I am here because of an act of grace beyond myself. And so I really come to the to, to this reading, I hope, and with humility and, and and begin with sort of the expectation of meeting God there and rather than looking for things um, to be problematic, um, really committing myself to the work of the text and to the interpretive community. Um, but I think the other thing I would say about that is, um, your, our politics de, are determine how we read scripture. And mm -hmm. um, I know that's not like a, um, that's going to seem a little complicated for some people to hear. Um, but, but I think it's, I, it's true. And um, we, if you can, if we commit ourselves to the work of dismantling anti-Semitism, we put our lives on the line um, alongside our Jewish neighbors who are having their synagogues shot up by mm. people who are being taught this anti-Semitic theology. And that's the place where all of this begins. Um, once you have a commitment, a political commitment, um, that, that, that orients the way that you approach the story of, mm -hmm. um, of what of how we read the story, both as guests and as this being the thing that we have um, in our community, mm -hmm. and we can't we can't get out of that tension, right? Like the the for us the Old Testament is always both contiguous and and and, and separate, mm -hmm. right? That's it's both of those things at the same time, mm -hmm. and the only way to sort of make sense of that is is to have political commitments to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to dismantling anti-Semitism in ourselves and politically. Yeah, I, I would imagine that in the writing of the book, you encountered and read a lot of Jewish theologians, um, particularly Jewish biblical theologians. What were some of the things that you noticed uh, of the ways in which they may have interpreted the Old Testament that maybe Christians have traditionally interpreted differently? Yeah, great. So I, um, my first, or I guess my sec, my my first master's degree is in Second Temple Judaism. Mm. So I, I really learned how to read the the Hebrew Bible from uh, the, from the rabbis, uh, mm. from the sort of interpretive worlds of of the Mishnah in particular, because the Second Temple Judaism is really that early early part of the Talmud and and. Um, so I, I I think one of the one of the important things for me that because that was sort of my training that still is always feels a little odd in reading with Christian communities is that there's sort of there's no um, everything's sort of on the table in terms of an interpretive tool um, and there's not a lot of sense of like you have to throw like um, if there's rules they're sort of always available so for instance allegory. 
sometimes there's no rhyme or reason that I can tell to when the rabbis decide to use allegory or mm. when they decide to interpret a text as having been fulfilled in the present by something else happening mm. or when they decide to use a midrash to expand upon a space within the text. Mm. Um, it's sort of like there's all these tools and they decide among themselves which is the helpful one which is the one that makes the most sense in this moment, um, which feels very different than saying, oh, you just, you can't, you know, it's, it's wrong for you to use allegory here or mm. you're being dismissive of this part of the text. And it's like, that's just kind of how it is in other some interpretive communities. And, um, and so there's something very freeing about that. Um, and also recognizing it's able to, they're able to do that because they do it in, in, in study communities. They, mm. they argue it out, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, there's something on the line here for them. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just a bunch of people sitting down to find out the original meaning of the text. Like, like they, they have things that are at stake for them mm. and they really, they take the time to argue it out. What, uh, what can Christians learn from that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, what can Christians learn from that? Well, hey, I mean, I think in one of something that I, I hope that we can learn um, is that this the work of interpretation is not the work of experts. Mm. It's not um, like what you need is 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 before you, um, and. Um, and so I think to stop expecting other people to do this work for us um, and instead to recognize that we all come with commitments and that your commitments will, in, will help you figure out what, what the text means right now mm -hmm. in this moment. And, and perhaps also just to say that I, you know, I think the sort of evangelical sense of there's one meaning to the text we extract it and apply it to things. And mm. um, that, that's just not, that has not been the interpretive framework for most of even Christianity. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so to sort of allow, to not be afraid for the text to, to say multiple things and have several of them be true. lot of organizing work in in Raleigh. Almost said Durham. Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm going to have to cut that yeah. part out. <laughs> how does how does the Old Testament inspire the political and organizing work that you do? Um Does it say anything about uh, not uh miss uh <laughs> misidentifying Durham and Raleigh? <laughs> yeah, the 11th commandment of North Carolina. Um, um, that's a good question. You know, I, I think that um, for me, 
there, it, this is, has to do less with sort of the ethics that like the applicable ethics of the Old Testament, which I think is oftentimes what we hear like, oh, I, I, I was a sojourner. And so we need to have this relationship to immigrants. Um, you know, it, it, I understand that. I think that those are valid claims to make. Um, they all come out of interpretive communities, which I think mm -hmm. is also something to remember. Um, but I think more so for me, it's, this is about um, that relationship to both Jewish and Muslim communities that there are, there are shared commitments that we have within within the stories that emerge from from this text, which we all have different names for um, the Quran or the Tanakh or the mm -hmm. Old Testament, um, and that somehow within in within the the religious commitments of our of our of those stories are things that we can do together. Um, and and so I I can bring that piece of myself both my both what we share and my difference, um, and that those can coexist in the work that we do together, um, which is really why the why the work of coalitions has been so important to me. Mm. Um, I think is because of those those shared stories that we have, um, and you can't get you can't get around that um, mm -hmm. when reading this this part of our Bible. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so that means that the work of Industrial Areas Foundation here in Raleigh with Wake County sponsors means that you have you do that hard work of coalition building, um, mm -hmm. of naming differences, of naming what we share. Mm -hmm. Here's a little quick strike one. Actually, I'd, I'd prefer it not to be a quick strike one. But what's your favorite story in the Old Testament, and why? Hmm. Uh. I, I have a deep attachment to the story of Ruth. Um, hmm. it's, it was one of the first that I learned in biblical Hebrew. Um, it's a great, it's a very simple, it's a grammatically very simple story and also has a lot of repetitive um, vocabulary. So it's a really, it's, it's, that's one that a lot of people read as one of their first stories. And but one of the, I just, I, I love some of the ways that, the story, um, again, sort of makes some, some ethical issues, especially around human sexuality, pretty complicated. Mm. Um, but also there's this one part where, um, Ruth's name has not been said. She's been called all these different things along the way. Um, and then in chapter three, she says her own name for the first time. Mm. Um, and it's when Boaz asks, who is that? And, and it's this real turn in the text uh, for Ruth kind of goes off the script that Naomi has offered to her. Um, and there's, there, there's something very empowering about and something very holy about Ruth say her, saying her name for the mm -hmm. first time. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would want that for other, other people who have felt that that their names have not been said and perhaps mm -hmm. in the way that they've hoped they've been mm -hmm. said. Mm -hmm. That that reminds me a lot about you you hear it in the the Black Lives Matter movement. You hear it um you know especially now with the seven people who have died in essentially what are concentration camps at the border. Um mm -hmm. but but you often hear people uh say say their name. Yeah. say their name. So there's just a power in that um, about the about the name itself that personalizes it and um, that 
makes it sink in a little bit deeper that oh this is a this is a person that shares humanity with myself and um, and had hopes and dreams just in the same way that we all have hopes and dreams and what makes us human so yeah there yeah. there's something about that right that uh, this the yeah. name itself in in and just simply saying it uh, that humanizes some someone. Ben Gadwaugh with me today, and Ben is a wonderful Twitter friend. Uh, I don't know how long we've been following each other, but at least over a year, if not closer to two years now. And uh, I didn't know this about you, Ben, but you uh, make some music. And, I do make uh, music. So you reached out to me and uh, said, hey, you should use some of my music on your one of your episodes. And so that's why mm-hmm. I've done. Uh, and I, I'm a really big fan of instrumental music. I don't know if you know if I'm a fan of like Sergeros and explosions in the sky and this will destroy oh, you which yeah. obviously a little bit more like guitar driven uh mm-hmm. instrumental music yours is a little bit more electronic driven but uh nonetheless instrumental music and uh yeah what got you into making instrumental music what what was the itch that uh you had to scratch uh well turns out i was the lead guitarist for a church for like 10 years Wow, that will do and it. I really missed having a creative outlet for music. So I just started learning how to record and produce on my own. Um, guitar is my main instrument, but I'm getting into like MIDI. I just bought a Ableton Launchpad to mess with samples. And wow. I listen to so much music. I want to just be able to create what I enjoy also. Did, uh, did the worship experience, that uh, leading worship experience, did that do you think contributed in any way in terms of the sound of what you were trying to capture? Um, Obviously there's like a particular kind of sound that worship music tends to have. Mm -hmm. Were you trying to capture a certain sound with that? Or was there even maybe like a reaction to produce a sound that sounded quite different than what you had been doing in worship music? It definitely did. Um, I always considered myself adding texture to the music that was being made. Mm. Um, I worked very closely with the the drummer during the worship music sessions and we would kind of communicate where the dynamics of the song were going and mm-hmm. I added like flavor to the acoustic that was going on so creating my own music I wanted to bring that texture in those dynamics but also create these this layer of something that didn't quite fit cuz I don't know, I want it to feel happy and groovy, but mm-hmm. something is a little off, something is a little like off-putting at the same time. Mm-hmm. How uh, long did it take you to record and produce and, and all the things for kind of the selection of songs that you have on SoundCloud? Um, they, they go from like a two-hour to four-hour session, depends on what I'm feeling. Okay. Uh, I listen to a ton of music, so I'll usually pick up a a bass line or a drum or something that inspires me and I'll mm-hmm. play with the idea for a little bit and just sit down and, and work with the idea. Uh, some of them I'll come back to, others of them I'm up till three o'clock in the morning trying to, to publish them. So it's really all over the place. Wow. 
does uh, your creative process kind of fold into something like that where once you get on that train, you just can't get off. And before you know it, it's like three, four o'clock in the morning and you're like, oh, my God, I have to get up in the morning. But totally. my creative juices are flowing and I, yeah. I can't stop. Does it feel it, like that sometimes with some of these songs? It totally does. And sometimes I'll just like I'll publish it and then I'll just listen to it on repeat and be like, oh, I want to change that. Or, yeah. oh, this part's amazing. And uh, just kind of sit in that creativity for a little bit. Right. One of the things that we've been able to connect over in the last year or so is because you kind of were in that Christian realm, you mm-hmm. uh, really got into a lot of like Christian hardcore music that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Was there any, is there any influence from that scene that you, for whatever reason, find uh, to kind of influence your music at all? Oh, yeah. I was super into Screamo, and it's kind of inevitable to bring those flavors into my music. Mm-hmm. Um, like my, my bandmate, someone I collaborate with says I have three and a half bands inside me at once. I have an electronic band, a folk band, uh, an electronic band and 0.5, a punk band. I just can't, <laughs> can't take it out of the music. That's awesome. Uh, where are you kind of thinking on like this project to go? I, I know that, you know, you're probably, you're not like a professional musician where you're, you know, you're trying to like sell these songs and tour on them and produce mm-hmm. albums and that kind of thing. It's more of just like a, a hobby that uh, is obviously a very well done hobby, but something that you're really trying to uh, to just kind of, like I said at the beginning, itch a scratch uh, in you. Do you mm-hmm. have like an idea, like any aspirations of making it a little bit more of, a, of something, maybe making it a full uh, kind of cohesive album at some point, maybe even playing some of these songs live? Is there any aspiration for something like that? Yeah, I would love to perform. Uh, there's a good local scene here in Boston. Um, and I have some musician friends. Uh, so just collaborate, host events. Uh, last year, we did this Halloween gig where a bunch of local bands covered other bands. Oh, interesting. And we did a beach house set, and it was like eight songs and a lot of work. Uh, but yeah, I miss performing as part of music and the mm. collaboration and I never wanted to be a solo act, so I want to meet other creatives and, and make music with them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the instrumentalness of this music is highly intentional. Is, is there, what is it behind wanting to, to kind of keep your, maybe your vocals out of this that mm-hmm. maybe for whatever reason enhances this music? Not to say that you're, I don't know what your, your singing is like, I'm sure it's great. But there's obviously an intentionality to, to keep this an instrumental project. Uh, what, what's the impetus behind that? Um, singing is kind of new for me, so I'm a little shy about it. Mm. Uh, I work on poetry and lyrics, so maybe someday there'll be vocals. Um, but I'm always so fascinated by layers of music, like how deep you can go in kind of the sound that's happening. Mm-hmm. So like really subtleties and those are the things that I really enjoy about music. Like there's songs where I'm like, ooh, this like four second piece of this song just makes me so happy. So I try to like mimic those intentional moments in instrumental music. Mm. What about in terms of, we, or let me back up. You mentioned before that, you know, like the hardcore scene and like folk and punk has been really influential in this music. Obviously mm-hmm. with this being an instrumental band, an instrumental project, there's instrumental acts that are quite influential in this music. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you name some of those 
acts uh, that have become of influence, those instrumental acts that have become of influence for this project, and why in particular those acts? Sure. Um, I really love Kenny Siegel and mm. Shlomo. Mm. Uh, a lot of Flume's recent stuff is really good. Um, yeah, can't think of any else on the top of my head, uh, but uh, they all kind of are not quantized and they're all kind of messy and mm. layered. Uh, I never want anything that sounds super clean when it's instrumental. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, that I, I can I can definitely hear that in your music. It's also quite different than, you know, I mentioned at the, before, like Sergeros and Explosions mm -hmm. and This Will Destroy You. And not to say that their music is clean, but it definitely the, the song structure of those acts are quite different than mm -hmm. the song structure that you're kind of going for. Obviously, your songs are quite shorter. Um, yeah. And there's almost even because they're electronic, there's more of like this kind of beat to it that has like a just like some of the instrumental bands you just mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. And so even the strong structure structure is different. The, the core elements of the song sound quite different. Uh, so it seems like you're certainly taking a different trajectory of instrumental music than some of the instrumental bands that have been really influential in mm -hmm. my life. I listen to a lot of um, jazz rap and experimental hip hop. Oh, okay. And so a lot of those are inspirations behind my music. Mm. The, the, the beats themselves and kind of the, those, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, can I can definitely hear that. There's, there's definitely that going on. In terms of, you know, now you're you kind of drawing on all of these different genres that have been really influential on you. So something, let's say, like experimental rap and hip hop. Mm -hmm. um, what is it like then for you to like hear really good experimental hip hop, whatever, you know, name whatever artist you want and mm -hmm. to listen to them and to hear how good they are and then to draw on some of like the sounds that they're making and trying to either maybe mimic some of those sounds or. Uh, try to create similar sounds. Mm -hmm. what, what's that process like of trying to kind of create something that sounds a lot like something that's really good? And I, I don't know, I guess for my own like creative pursuits, when I hear uh, either bands or other creative outlets that are really influential to me, and then I try to mimic something that's like them. Mm -hmm. And I'm always kind of like comparing and contrasting my product versus theirs uh anyway that sometimes brings up a lot of like emotions for me of like is this adequate does this even remotely come close to what i'm trying to get like anyways yeah. is some of that come come up when you uh when you're creating uh you know knowing some of the bands and uh artists that you're trying to to draw on totally yeah um there's definitely a lot of stuff in my earlier songs that sound a lot like imitation Mm -hmm. And imitation for me is a lot like reverse engineering. <laughs> so, you know, where is this sound coming from? Why is this sound this way? Yep. And the ones that I'm more comfortable in are more of my own sound and um, I'm more comfortable with them. They're, they're like imitation, but it's my own flavor of that. Mm -hmm. um, and this happened when I was in design school my earlier work felt like I was just copying what I found on Google and right. then it became, you know, my inspiration became my creative brand. Mm. That's awesome. 
Well, thank you again, Ben. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of the music. I was really pleasantly surprised when you reached out to me and said, "Hey, I've got some some tunes," and uh, you know, some you know, you never know what you're getting yourself into when you reach out to people like that. Uh, and then, uh, and then, yeah, I took a listen. I was very pleasantly surprised that uh, that you were making really good music. Uh, it really stands on its own. I appreciate that. I'm trying to push myself to get it out there more. So, hopefully, yeah, more. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. My last uh, kind of main question, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer. You, you, you know, you've, you were obviously incredibly well-educated. You were at Duke. Um, and um, even to my chagrin, you're, you're a Bardian. But nonetheless, uh, I'm sure you uh, are, are quite familiar with Bonhoeffer. And you might be familiar with his concept that he writes a little bit about of religionless Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see your work related or relating to Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity? If you do at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I think what I have taken from that is um, the opportunity for there to be freedom uh, that extends beyond um, some of the some of the places where we have offered restriction and mm. and so I I wonder if this is I wonder if if part of this is actually what has drawn me to Anabaptism mm. um, is a is a sense of um, that we're, we we always sense that there is something fragile about the thing that we have. It, it mm. never feels like a possession. It's something that is always sort of getting beyond us. Um, and so if I think about um, religion as, as possession, um, as something mm. that um, offers us foundations that, that, that constantly need to be questioned, mm-hmm. um, maybe that's also what's happening in this book is, is that, that, again, that sense of return, we need to look back again. Um, and so, I wonder if that might be a place to intersect with that question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of a a thing called the golden calf, right? Like (laughs) (laughs) despite it's, uh, despite it's allure, it is certainly fragile. And, uh, and despite even what we may think it, it really at the end of the day is quite fragile. Last question, Melissa, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Um, I'm going to be around a little bit this from time to time around the country doing some speaking. And um, so I'll be up at State College um, 
in a couple weeks and um, out in Denver in January over at Eastern Mennonite University in, mm. in the, in the part, first part of the year, 2020. Um, and I keep a schedule on my website, just melissaflorbixler.com. Um, I am taking a little break from Twitter right now. Mm-hmm. So, I think I saw that. Yeah, I know. Um, sort of like spur of the minute decision, but starting to clear, clear my mind space. Um, so still kind of discerning my Twitter life right now and, and what's helpful and what's not mm. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you may catch me back on there. Um, and yeah. And then, um, you know, I'm always up for, you know, I love just taking people's questions and being with people. Um, so you can always reach out to me, church website, RaleighMennonite.org has some contact info and yeah, I love to hear from people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. I've really been inspired by a lot of the work that you do. I I really appreciate your unapologetic approach to being both a really wonderful scholar, but also a really wonderful pastor. Um, And and you just intersect those two so very, very well. Thank you so much. It was great to connect with you. like to connect both with Melissa and Ben and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if religionless church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it.